Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 50 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Joseph Smith, the original Mormon prophet. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So in the early 1800s, a young man in New York reported receiving divine revelations that directed him to translate a new book of scripture. Joseph Smith soon gained a reputation as a seer and as the founding prophet of the Mormon religion. Today, his revelations and prophecies influence the faith lives of millions of people. So what evidence is there concerning his role as a prophet? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is, for start off, this is a patron's episode, correct? Right, yeah. Excellent. So you can thank our patrons for this discussion. Jimmy, to start off, you and I are both Catholic. So does right. that does that mean we think that God only gives revelations to Catholics? No, God can work with people no matter who they are. We've already devoted a show. It was episode number 44 to a non-Catholic named John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet, who was Protestant. And in that episode, I concluded he may well have received a divine revelation. So as we pointed out then, God does sometimes give revelations to people who aren't Catholics, either at the time, like St. Paul or uh, Constantine the Great, or to people who were ever Catholic, like it may have been the case for John Hendrick. Okay, so the fact that Joseph Smith wasn't Catholic doesn't mean we're going to just dismiss him as a prophet on those grounds. No, I want to be as just and as fair and impartial on this on this issue as we try to be on all the other issues we cover on this program. I hope that Mormons who listen to this episode will appreciate how fair and impartial we're trying to be. We've dealt briefly before with the subject of Mormonism on the podcast. Uh, In episode 36 on Skinwalker Ranch, that story involved a Mormon couple, but the subject of their religion wasn't at the core of the story, so we didn't make an issue of it, and we treated them just like anybody else. So if you're one of our Catholic or Protestant listeners, you can share this episode with your Mormon friends without having to worry that we're just going to be bashing Joseph Smith, because we're not. We want to take an objective look at the evidence, including the evidence that Mormons cite, and see where it points. And I hope thoughtful Mormons will appreciate that we're trying to do that. Okay. So uh, I also understand that we need to make a few preliminary remarks before we look at the evidence. What, what is that? Well, the first one is to keep the episode at a reasonable length. We're going to be looking specifically at Joseph Smith's claim to be a prophet. That means we're not going to be looking in any detail at other aspects of his life. We might look at some of those in future episodes. In particular, we're not going to be looking at criticisms of some of his actions in other areas. Some people might think that we should because how you know evidence of one's behavior in one area can have a bearing on one's credibility as a prophet. But I want to be as fair as possible, and I don't want to invite charges that we're just gossiping or unjustly criticizing someone instead of looking at more objective evidence. Ultimately, I don't think we need to look at other areas of Smith's life. Uh, to make an assessment of the prophecy claims. And so for that, and for reasons of length, we're just going to be looking strictly at this area. Also, because there are different groups of Mormons, 
I should note that we're going to be looking at his role as understood by the largest Mormon church, which is the one based in Salt Lake City. Uh, we won't be going into uh, claims by other Mormon groups. Okay. And there's a second disclaimer as well, right? Yeah. The second is we are going to be really careful about the sources of information we use. There were a lot of rumors and misinformation about Joseph Smith in his own day, and there are a lot of rumors and misinformation today. Sometimes there has even been uh, deliberate misinformation about him. For example, in the 1980s, there was a criminal named Mark Hoffman who forged a document called the Salamander Letter. It claimed a it had a fraudulent account of Smith's interactions with spirits, including one that appeared as a white salamander. Hoffman was a skilled forger and later a murderer. And the Salamander Letter was sold for like $40,000. To their credit, and before the fraud was revealed, Mormon authorities did not immediately denounce the letter. They encouraged their people to answer questions about it honestly, and also, to their credit, critics of Mormonism, like uh, Gerald Tanner, helped expose the letter as a forgery, and Hoffman later went to jail. But you'll still find accounts of the Salamander letter out there, and so we need to be really careful about the sources that we use. On this subject, in this podcast, I'm going to only be using well-attested sources that are agreed upon by Mormons. We're not going to be quoting stuff for Mormon critics. We're going to be erring on the side of caution and not looking at disputed claims. And I, a lot of the things we're going to uh, be talking about are straight off the LDS.org website, you know, the official Mormon website. So I hope Mormon listeners will appreciate the fact that we're trying to be careful and fair and not go down side trails. All right. So what are the basic facts about Joseph Smith's life? Well, he was born in 1805 in Vermont, but his family moved to upstate New York or to New York State. He founded a church that was originally called the Church of Christ, but in 1838, it became known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He died in 1844 in Carthage, Illinois. He was 38 years old at the time. And the circumstances of his death are interesting and controversial, but since they don't deal directly with the question of whether he was a prophet, we won't be covering them here out of fairness. So what are the, the basic claims about him being a prophet? Let's start by looking at his own claim. We can find these in a document called Joseph Smith History which is something he wrote, and it's part of a work called The Pearl of Great Price, which is one of the Mormon scriptures. According to Smith, in 1819, there was a revival in his area of New York with many competing claims being made by different denominations, including Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists. In response, in the spring of 1820, so when he was about 15, he prayed to God, asking him to reveal to him which denomination was teaching the truth. He then had an, an experience that Mormons refer to as the first vision. He said God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him that he shouldn't join any of the denominations because they were all wrong. He said that in September of 1823, when he would have been 18 years old, he had another vision, this time of an angel named Moroni. Moroni told him about a book written on golden plates that contained a record of the former inhabitants of this continent, and that it also contained the gospel 
as delivered by the Savior, meaning Jesus, to the ancient inhabitants. Also, that there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones, fastened to a breastplate, constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited along with the plates, and the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. Moroni then indicated that one day Smith would obtain these plates and the Urim and Thummim. The next day, the angel told him to go to the hill where the artifacts were to be found, and he found a stone box, but the angel didn't let him take them at the time. He then returned to the site once a year for four years, uh, and receiving additional instruction from the angel. In September of 1827, the angel let Smith take the plates and told him to keep them safe until he asked for them again. Smith then copied characters found on the plates and used the Urim and Thummim to translate some of them. He then gave copies of this to his friend Martin Harris, and according to Harris, the following happened. All right, this is what he said. I went to the city of New York and presented the characters which had been translated, with the translation thereof, to Professor Charles Anthon, a gentleman celebrated for his literary attainments. Professor Anthon stated that the translation was correct, more so than any any he had seen before seen translated from the Egyptian. I then showed him those which were not yet translated, and he said that they were Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic, and he said they were true characters. He gave me a certificate certifying to the people of Palmyra that they were true characters, and that the translation of such of them as had been translated was also correct. I took the certificate and put it into my pocket, and was just leaving the house when Mr. Anthon called me back and asked me how the young man found out that there were golden plates in the place where he found them. I answered that an angel of God had revealed it unto him. He then said to me, Let me see that certificate. I accordingly took it out of my pocket and gave it to him when he took it and tore it to pieces, saying that there was no such thing now as ministering of angels, and that if I would bring the plates to him, he would translate them. I informed him that part of the plates were sealed and that I was forbidden to bring them. He replied, I cannot read a sealed book. Then in April of 1829, Smith then began to translate the plates, now known as the Book of Mormon, or at least the part of them that was was translated is known as the Book of Mormon, with the help of a man named Oliver Cowdery, who served as his scribe after Harris had done some initial work as scribe. Smith uh, stated that in May of 1829, John the Baptist appeared to him and then ordained him and Cowdery to what Mormons refer to as the Aaronic priesthood, and that they baptized each other. And that basically takes us up to the end of Joseph Smith history. In 1830, Smith published the Book of Mormon, which became the first book of distinctively Mormon scripture. So what is the Book of Mormon? It's about 270,000 words long, making it a little less than twice as long as the New Testament. It's composed of 15 books, and it describes events occurring in the Americas between about 2200 B.C. and the year 421 A.D. At LDS.org, they have an edition of the Book of Mormon that has an introduction which says the following. The Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. 
It is a record of God's dealing with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The book was written by many ancient prophets by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Their words, written on gold plates, were quoted and abridged by a prophet historian named Mormon. The record gives an account of two great civilizations. One came from Jerusalem in 600 BC and afterwards separated into two nations known as the Nephites and the Lamanites. Uh, Nephites, I should mention. Thank you. Uh, Nephites. The other came much earlier when the Lord confounded the tongues at the Tower of Babel. This group is known as the Jaredites. After thousands of years, all were destroyed except the Lamanites, and they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. The crowning event recorded in the Book of Mormons, Mormon is the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ among the Nephites soon after his resurrection. After Mormon completed his writings, he delivered the account to his son Moroni, who added a few words of his own and hid up the plates in the hill Camora. On September 21st, 1823, the same Moroni, then a glorified resurrected being, appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and instructed him relative to the ancient record and its destined translation into the English language. And then according to uh, Joseph Smith, these books were that he received were written on golden plates in a language known as Reformed Egyptian. So before his first vision, did Joseph Smith have any involvement with supernatural revelation? Potentially. Uh, he was known to use something he called a seer stone to obtain information in a paranormal manner. This is something that not all Mormons are aware of, but the, the Mormon church is quite frank about it. Uh, in fact, there's a page on seer stones on the LDS.org website, and we'll have a link to it. According to that page, in Joseph Smith's day, some individuals claimed that they had a gift to see or receive divine or supernatural messages through seer stone. These beliefs came from the Bible and from European cultural traditions that uh, brought to America by immigrants. Joseph Smith and his family accepted these beliefs, and Joseph occasionally used stones he located in the ground to help neighbors find missing objects or search for buried treasure. And this corresponds to accounts we have from Smith's day that as a young man, he used the seer stone, and actually more than one, but there's a famous one. They even have a picture of it at LDS.org, to help people search for buried treasure, which is an activity that was then called money digging. I haven't been able to verify, I've done a little bit of looking, I haven't been able to verify other people using seer stones, but certainly practices like this uh, were common. In his day, people would use dowsing, you know, to search for hidden resources, whether it be water or treasure or whatever it might be. And in rural communities, it wasn't at all rare for people to do things like that. It was actually quite common. But you said that um, many Mormons aren't aware of the seer stone. Why is that? Mormon religious art hasn't emphasized the role of the seer stone, but it's not something that Mormon authorities deny. In fact, as I mentioned, there's a, a picture of Joseph Smith's main seer stone on the LDS webpage, and there's also a video of, of a couple of Mormon experts discussing how he used it uh, to do translation. One of the ways that he used it was when he was working on translating the golden plates. He would put the seer stone in his hat and then put his face in the hat, apparently to block out outside light, and then dictate the words of the Book of Mormon based on what he had learned through the seer stone. And, you know, they talk about this in the video. That's not how 
he's ordinarily pictured in Mormon art, though, doing the act of translation. And so that's why not everybody is aware of this. The seer stone, though, because it was something he used before he had his prophetic commission, it's kind of a bridge between his pre-prophet days and his days as Mormon prophet. So Joseph Smith mentioned above that, as we were talking before, that Martin Harris showed some early translations to Professor Charles Anthon. Did anyone else get to see early translations while he was working on the Book of Mormon? Yeah, and this led to an incident involving what is what are known as the lost 116 pages. Before he worked with Oliver Cowdery, Smith used Martin Harris as a scribe, and Harris's wife Lucy was suspicious of Smith. She insisted on seeing the golden plates, and according to the LDS website, she even ransacked Smith's house looking for them, but didn't find them. Harris asked if he could at least show her the translation that they had done, and so Smith inquired of God. The first two times he asked, God said no, but the third time God agreed, and so Smith let Harris take the only copy of the 116-page translation they had and show it to her. While the manuscript was in Harris's possession, it disappeared and he was unable to find it despite extensive searching. Uh, Smith then received a revelation telling him that wicked men had tampered with the words of the manuscript and that if he retranslated those portions of the plates, they would produce the altered manuscript and claim he was a fraud. He was therefore forbidden to retranslate those pages. Instead, he continued the work of translation and discovered that the surviving plates contained material which summarized what had been lost, but which wasn't an exact copy. So did anyone besides Joseph Smith get to see the Golden Plates? The Book of Mormon contains two statements known as the testimony of the three witnesses and the testimony of the eight witnesses. The three witnesses were Oliver Cowdery, the main scribe, Martin Harris, the original scribe, and also the financial backer who helped Smith publish the Book of Mormon, and a man named David Whit who was an early convert to Mormonism. The eight witnesses who signed the second statement consisted of members either by blood or marriage of two families, the Whitmers and the Smiths. Four were brothers of David Whitmer, who was one of the original three witnesses. One was David Whitmer's brother-in-law, a man named Hiram Page, and the other three were relatives of Joseph Smith. They were his father, Joseph Smith Sr., as well as his brothers Hiram and Samuel. According to the testimony of the three witnesses, this is a direct quotation, an angel of God came down from heaven, and he brought and laid before our eyes that which we beheld and saw, the plates, and the engravings thereon. According to the testimony of the eight witnesses, Joseph Smith showed them the plates, and they got to both see and handle them. So in this case, it wasn't an angel. It was Smith himself who showed them the plates, and then they got to see them and handle them. And then what, what eventually happened to the golden plates? According to Smith, he returned them to the angel after the work of translation was done. So he gave them back to Moroni. Details of how exactly this happened vary, depending on the source you look at. According, though, to Smith's wife, Lucy, the Quote, the angel again made his appearance to Joseph, at which time Joseph delivered up the plates into the angel's hand, close quote. And we'll have a link to the source where Lucy Smith says that. 
So besides the Book of Mormon, what other Mormon scriptures are there? There are three that are considered the standard works of scripture among Mormons. These are the Bible, which they uh, use the King James Version for in English. Obviously, in other languages, they use other translations, but in English, they use the King James. There's also, though, something called the Joseph Smith Translation, which we'll talk about a little bit. Then there's a second work called Doctrine and Covenants, and there's a work we mentioned briefly before called the Pearl of Great Price. So together with the Book of Mormon, those are the four standard works of Mormon scripture. So what is the this Doctrine and Covenants? It's a collection of 138 revelations, mostly received by Smith, though a few are by more recent Mormon prophets. Okay. And then what is the Pearl of Great Price? It's an anthology containing five smaller works. The LDS.org website describes them as follows, and this is a quotation. One, selections from the Book of Moses, an extract from the Book of Genesis of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, which he began in 1830. So that's that Joseph Smith translation I mentioned. There's more to it than just this, but Selections from the Book of Moses is part of that translation. It's a revision of the King James. Um, He claimed to be correcting things that had been wrong in the King James. Uh, Two, the Book of Abraham, an inspired translation of the writings of Abraham. Smith began the translation in 1835 after obtaining some Egyptian papyri. Three, Joseph Smith, Matthew, an extract from the testimony of Matthew in Joseph Smith's translation from the Bible, so another part of the Joseph Smith version. Four, Joseph Smith history, excerpts from Joseph Smith's official testimony and history, which he and his scribes prepared in 1838 to 1839. And that's what we were quoting from before, when he was talking about the early history of the plates and the visions and stuff. And then five, the Articles of Faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a statement uh, by Joseph Smith published in The Times and Seasons, March 1st, 1842, in company with a short history of the church that was popularly known as the Wentworth Letter. So it's basically a, a creed. What kind of evidence do Mormons present for Joseph Smith being a prophet? The main evidence is based on prayer. Uh, If you look in the Book of Mormon, there's a book called Moroni, and in chapter chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 of that book, uh, we find the following statement. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. Then, So they're going to use that passage to suggest people should pray about whether Smith is a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true, things like that. Also in uh, Doctrine and Covenants, in the ninth chapter, in the eighth verse, uh, Oliver Cowdery is being addressed in a revelation, and he's told, But behold, I say unto you, that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you, therefore you shall feel it is right. So again, an indication of asking God in prayer whether something's true and getting an indication, in this case, of a, of a feeling, uh, so that you'll feel that it's right. And this is the basis of uh, this 
statement that your bosom shall burn within you is the basis of what's often called the burning in the bosom that people are asked to pray about. And then finally, they'll appeal to a book in the Bible, to James chapter 1, verse 5, where James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So, based on passages like this in their own scriptures and in the Bible, Mormons ask people to pray about whether or not Joseph Smith is a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true, things like that. Thus, in the introduction to the LDS.org edition of the Book of Mormon, there is a passage that invites prayer on these subjects. It says, We invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, parenthetically, see Moroni 10, 3-5. Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. And we'll discuss this appeal to prayer when we come to the section of the podcast on the faith perspective. But so does this emphasis on prayer mean that Mormonism, Mormonism is closed to the use of evidence and reason in evaluating the scriptures? No, not in principle. They print the testimonies of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses in every Book of Mormon, and that involves an appeal to external evidence rather than simply prayer. They're pointing to here's what these guys said they saw and handled. Uh, so that's external evidence that's not just prayer. They also, in the Pearl of Great Price, they published several reproductions. These are illustrations. They're called facsimiles one through three, and they're taken from the Egyptian text from the papyri that Smith used for the translation of the book of Abraham. So they also show you this external evidence. This is what he was translating from. And so, again, it's not simply based on prayer. They're also open to external evidence being uh, part of the evaluation. So this is, that's the background for our discussion. So let's approach these from the reason perspective and the faith perspective. Let's start with reason. What, we, what can we say about Joseph Smith as a prophet from the reason perspective? There are a lot of arguments that have been proposed, both for and against Smith's role as a prophet. And if we were going to cover them all, this would end up being a 10 or 20 hour audiobook. So we're only going to be able to look at some of the ones that I consider to be more significant. Listeners will undoubtedly be aware of other arguments, both for and against. But, you know, to keep it reasonable, we're only going to be look at some of the major ones. Are there bad arguments against the Mormon position? Yes. Yes, there are. Uh, not all of the positions, not all the arguments that get made are good ones uh, when people are critiquing Mormonism, including on, you know, regarding its scriptures. For example, uh, sometimes you'll find non-Mormon apologists saying, well, the Book of Mormon plagiarizes the King James Version, that there are passages in the Book of Mormon that are lifted from the King James Version. These are very short. It's not like whole books or anything. But this isn't a good argument. This isn't a good criticism. For one thing, copyright is a modern invention, and it didn't exist in the ancient world, and ancient texts frequently would borrow from each other. And so that's something you would expect in the ancient world. In fact, there are brief passages in the Bible that do exactly this. Uh, 
for example, uh, and scholars have a name for this, they call it intertextuality, where the, there's a relationship between two different texts that refer to each other. An example of this is Isaiah. If you look in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, it has exactly the same prophecy in the same words that you'll find in Micah 4, verses 1 through 3. So here we have one book of the Bible quoting the same prophecy as you find in another book of the Bible. And they don't even refer to each other. Isaiah doesn't say, as Micah says, and Micah doesn't say, as Isaiah says. It's just, here's this prophecy. And so that kind of intertextuality we find even in the Bible, so I wouldn't criticize the Book of Mormon for it. Also, it's not at all implausible that Smith would be influenced by his knowledge of the King James Version, because that was the major English translation in his day among Protestants. So he grew up hearing that translation. It, it would be natural for him to be influenced by his knowledge of the King James Version when selecting the wording to be used in his own translation, because, you know, it is supposed to be a translation and translations influence each other. So let's talk about the distinctive Mormon scriptures from that reason perspective. What can we say about the Book of Mormon? There are several lines of evidence we should consider. These include the language in which the plates are supposed to be written, the transcript that was shown to Dr. Anthon, the incident involving the missing 116 pages, the testimonies of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, and also the histori historical and archaeological evidence connected with the Book of Mormon. All right. So let's start with the first one. What can we say about Smith's claim that the Book of Mormon was written in Reformed Egyptian? The idea that there was a dialect of Egyptian that you could call Reformed Egyptian is not intrinsically implausible. The Egyptian language was you know, used over thousands of years, and like any language, it developed over time. It's also not implausible that there would be a special script or that there might be a special script that you would use to write Reformed Egyptian. The Egyptians already used three scripts. They used hieroglyphs, you know, which they're famous for. And then they had another script called Hieratic, which was used by priests. And then they had another script called Demotic, which was used more by, at least it's held or thought or claimed in some situations to have been used by more ordinary people. And so, you know, if you even if you said, OK, well, it's this reformed Egyptian language and it's written in a special way, none of that's particularly implausible. Now, we don't have archaeological evidence to support this. So it's not like we have proof that reformed Egyptian or a reformed Egyptian script existed. But it's not implausible either. So this one's kind of a wash. It doesn't really either tend to prove or disprove Smith's claim. Do you know if this is predates or postdates the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which gave us the translation for Egyptian into Greek and that sort of thing? It's roughly contemporaneous with okay. the decipherment of Egyptian. Uh, Champollion's work in France hadn't yet been published when a lot of this was being done, but there was a lot of interest in it. And there was there were the beginnings of an understanding of Egyptian writing. So what can we say about this incident where Martin Harris showed up the, 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 the translation to Dr. Charles Anthon? Harris said that Anthon initially validated the idea that the characters were real. And he said there were they included ones from several, several languages, not just Egyptian, but also Chaldaic and Assyrian and Arabic and so forth. And that of the characters that had been translated, that the translation was correct. He even claimed Anthon said it was more correct than any he had seen. 
He allegedly, according to Harris, said this in writing, but then tore it up once he learned the source. Anthon told a different story. Anthon later said, and he put this in writing, that he had not validated the characters or their translation, that they were a hoax, and that they were part of a scheme to trick Harris out of his money because he was the financial backer who was going to help you know, publish the Book of Mormon because it takes money to print a book. So in this situation, it really depends on who you believe. If you believe Harris's account of the meeting, then that would provide evidence you know, to support the Book of Mormon. If you believe Anthon and his account of the meeting, then it would not provide evidence to support the Book of Mormon. It also would provide evidence against the truthfulness of Harris, which is significant because he was one of the Book of Mormon witnesses. But because this, we have here essentially a he said, he said situation, it's inconclusive and it doesn't prove the matter one way or another. I mean, it, depending on who you believe, it can provide some evidence, but it doesn't offer us conclusive proof. All right. So then now what can we say about those missing 116 pages? The question here is why, if the golden plates were real, Smith didn't just retranslate the pages? I mean, that's what a no, any normal translator would do if his initial work was lost. I mean, if you're if you're translating a, a book, whether it's the Bible or anything else, and, you know, your hard drive crashes or your house burns down or whatever it may be, you just start the translation again. In fact, you know, this is a, a biblical book, allegedly a scriptural book, but people make new translations of scriptural texts all the time. Smith explained the fact that he didn't by saying he'd been forbidden to do so by divine revelation. The basis of this revelation was the claim that wicked men had come into the possession of the 116 pages and altered them so they could charge him with fraud if he retranslated them. And so, you know, that's a possible explanation, but it doesn't provide decisive proof. It, I think it does, though, provide some evidence because you have to ask, you know, how plausible is Smith's explanation here? Even if evil men had gotten and altered the original translation, how hard would it be to detect the alterations? I mean, were they expert forgers who could mimic the penmanship of Smith's scribes? You know, could, would they be able to obliterate all traces of the original writing on the pages, whether it was in pencil or in ink? Given these facts and, you know, the fact that real translators normally just redo their work, an unbiased person, you know, who's not coming from a faith perspective one way or another, would tend to look at the situation and think of a different explanation, namely that Smith didn't redo the translation because he knew he couldn't reproduce the text from memory. Either the scribes would notice him making substantial differences during the dictation phase or the redictation phase, or someone, perhaps Harris's wife, Lucy, because she was the one who wanted to see the plates and the manuscript was in his possession when it vanished. Maybe she's got it hidden somewhere, maybe with a friend, and she might produce the original, point out there are substantial differences, and she would argue that Smith is a fraud. So while we don't have conclusive proof here, you know, an unbiased person who's not coming at this from a faith angle would look at it and say, you know, even though we don't have proof, on balance, the evidence is more against than in favor of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon here, because a normal translator in possession of the plates would just redo the work. Okay, so now what about 
the testimonies of the three and the eight witnesses. Reading the testimonies of the witnesses, you get the impression that they saw the golden plates and the characters on them with their physical eyes. And in the case of the eight witnesses, that they physically handled them with their hands. Uh, they thus would have an objective, unobstructed, real-world experience of the plates. And if that was the case, then that would be significant evidence that the golden plates were real. It would still be possible, you know, for them to be lying or for Smith to have hoaxed them with a set of fake plates. But those would be possibilities with lower levels of probability. You know, the normal in straightforward interpretation would be, well, the plates were real. And their testimony would count as significant evidence in favor of that. But if you examine Mormon historical sources, the picture is more complex, and it indicates that this objective, unobstructed experience of the plates isn't actually what the witnesses had. One witness, Martin Harris, later said that all 11 had only seen the plates in a vision after they had been praying fervently. So it wasn't an objective experience, it was subjective when they actually saw the plate. Joseph Smith's brother, William, who was one of the eight witnesses, said that his father and two brothers were only allowed to pick up a cloth-covered box that Joseph said contained the plates. And that's you know what they refer to when they talk about handling. So that was an objective experience, not of seeing them, but of handling them. But it wasn't unobstructed. It was obstructed by the box and the cloth. So this substantially reduces the value of their testimony, uh, since you know anyone who's praying fervently can can talk himself into thinking he's had a vision, and the people who handled the cloth-covered box couldn't see what was really inside it. So diminishes the value of this testimony rather substantially. So what can we say then about the historical and archaeological evidence concerning the Book of Mormon, because it makes historical and archaeological claims? So to approach this question, let's calibrate our expectations by looking at the historical and archaeological evidence concerning the Bible. And we can look at four aspects of it. It's language, uh, languages, uh, the places it mentions, the peoples it mentions, and the individuals that it mentions. Well, the Bible is written in three languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And these languages are known to have existed because we have evidence of them in the form of ancient inscriptions and manuscripts, and dialects of them are spoken today. You can go to Iraq and hear people speak Aramaic. You can go to Egypt, hear people speak, at least in the Coptic community, a version of the Egyptian language. You can go to Greece and hear people speak modern Greek. So these languages can be translated. They're understood by many people. Uh, anyone can learn them. I've studied them myself, and you can learn them yourself. The texts in the Bible uh, refer to numerous places that still exist, like Jerusalem, and places that have been rediscovered by archaeology, like Capernaum. They refer to ancient peoples who still exist, like Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Samaritans, and to civilizations whose archaeological remains have been excavated, like the Hittites, the Philistines, and the Moabites. The Bible also records individuals known from secular writings to have existed, and that includes people like Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Persian, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, Pontius Pilate, the emperors Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius, among others. So we've got a lot of evidence, both historical and archaeological, for the Bible. 
you know, supporting its general picture of what was going on in the old world. So then when we say, okay, well, what evidence do we have of a historical and archaeological nature that would bear on the picture that the Book of Mormon gives us of what was happening in the new world? What do we find? Well, there's no historical evidence that Reformed Egyptian existed. I mean, it's it's not implausible that there were dialects like that, but we don't have evidence of this one. We also don't have ancient inscriptions or manuscripts written in this language. Nobody can translate it, and it is not mentioned in historical writing. So it's completely different than the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic we're familiar with with the Bible. With one possible exception, which is Hill Cumorah, where he found the plate, no sites mentioned in the Book of Mormon can be identified today. And some Mormon apologists even question whether Hill Cumorah is the one that Smith visited is the one mentioned in the Book of Mormon due to problems with the geography described in the Book of Mormon. So even they say this may not be the same site. None of the civilizations the Book of Mormon mentions have been discovered by archaeologists, and none of the individual people, like, you know, Mormon and Moroni, none of the individual people it mentions can be shown from other sources to have existed. So there's no historical or archaeological evidence that the languages, the cities, the civilizations, or the individuals mentioned in the Book of Mormon were real. And this is a significant strike against the Book of Mormon, because if it were describing real history, we should be able to find and identify these language, languages, civilizations, and peoples. Many would argue, non-Mormons would argue, that this is a positive disproof of the Book of Mormon, that we should have this and we just don't, so that disproves it. But even if you wanted to say, you know, a Mormon might say, well, it's not positive disproof, but if you're being fair-minded, you would have to say it's a big absence of confirming data that we kind of would expect. So that's the, the Book of Mormon. What does yeah. the reason perspective suggest about this? Uh, the other book, The Doctrine and Covenants? Of the hundred plus revelations that Smith reported receiving, some of them provide testable evidence concerning his status as a prophet. In 1832, the state of South Carolina was involved in an incident known to historians as the Nullification Crisis. The state declared certain federal laws unconstitutional and therefore null and void within its, ter within its territory. And there was a lot of talk about South Carolina seceding from the Union. This was, you know, more than 30 years before the Civil War, when it actually did. The same year as the Nullification Crisis was happening, Smith issued a prophecy, which is now found in Doctrine and Covenants 87. Uh, could you read uh, the first three verses of that prophecy, please? Verily, thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls. And the time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on other nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called, and they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And then war shall be poured out upon all nations. Okay, so according to this prophecy, there will be war between the southern and northern states beginning at South Carolina, and that will lead to war being poured out on all nations, so a world war. Well, needless to say, Neither the nullification crisis of 1832 nor the U.S. Civil War that happened in the 1860s became a world war. 
First World War didn't break out until the 20th century, and it wasn't brought about as European states got drawn into conflict involving the North and the South in America. This prophecy is part of the official Mormon scriptures today, and it is spoken in the name of the Lord. You know, thus saith the Lord. It's right there in verse 1, which means that the biblical test of a true prophet applies. And that test uh, is found in Deuteronomy 18.22, at least that's one expression of it. Uh, Dom, could you read us that verse? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the word that Joseph Smith spoke in the name of the Lord didn't happen. And by that test, Smith spoke presumptuously. He was not in, he was not acting as a prophet of God in that case. And that gives us evidence to, to challenge or question his status as a prophet. So just to be clear, so there was a war between the states, Southern and yep. North. Was Fort Sumter in North Carolina or South Carolina? South Carolina. Okay. So some could, could claim that started at Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Yep. But the problem is that it didn't become a world war. That's what we're saying. That's part of it. Now, also, when he's, if, if there's another dimension to it as well, because the prophecy is originally given during the nullification crisis of 1832. 30 years and, before the Civil War. Right. Yeah. And so that's, he says that these wars are shortly going to come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina. And that seems to be a reference to the nullification crisis. Okay. So it, it looked like he was predicting a war was going to break out right then, which didn't. But even if you overlook that and say, okay, well, maybe he's, maybe it's talking about the Civil War that did break out at South Carolina a number of years later, it still didn't become a world war. Okay, that's, that's what I wanted to, to, to clarify yeah. in my mind. So what does, so that was the Doctrine and Covenants. So what does uh, reason perspective suggest about the Pearl of Great Price? Well, as we mentioned, the Pearl of Great Price contains a work known as the Book of Abraham, and it provides an excellent test case regarding whether Smith was a supernaturally endowed translator, whether he had the ability supernaturally to translate other languages like Egyptian or Reformed Egyptian. This is testable because the facsimiles of the Egyptian texts that are printed alongside Smith's explanations of what they say in with the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. We also have notes that Smith and his scribes took on the text where they would try to explain the meaning of various characters on the papyri. Uh, this is a document known as the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. We also actually have the Joseph Smith papyri themselves. They were thought to be lost, but they were rediscovered in a museum uh, in the 20th century. And so we actually have those as well. But if you even if you just look at the facsimiles in the book of Abraham, they show you the text and it's got Smith's notes on what is in the texts. For reasons of length, we won't be able to go into a lot of detail, but we will give some representative examples. And for a fuller discussion of the documents, we'll have some resources at the end of the episode. Facsimile three in the Pearl of Great Price depicts a scene from the papyri that Smith says shows Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne by the politeness of the king. So like Pharaoh's being polite, he's letting Abraham sit on his throne. And he's surrounded by other, uh, by Pharaoh and other members of his court. According to Smith's notes, the five figures in the facsimile are identified as King Pharaoh, Abraham, 
the prince of Pharaoh, Shulam, one of the king's principal waiters, and Olimla, a slave belonging to the prince. Smith also says that Pharaoh's name is given in the characters above his head, and the prince's identity is written above his hand, and that Shulam's identity is written by the characters above his hand. So he's telling us not only who these figures are, but where you'll find their their identities written. Well, okay, so Egyptian writing is now well understood, and Smith's identifications aren't correct. The scene does not depict Abraham sitting on on Pharaoh's throne. Uh, Instead, it depicts the god Osiris sitting on a throne, surrounded by other gods and preparing to give life to a deceased Egyptian priest named Hor, or to use the Latinized Greek form of his name, Horus. So there's this priest, he's died, his name is Hor or Horus, and here he is in the afterlife with Osiris, the god of the dead, and other gods about to give him life. None of the figures that Smith identified are who he said they were. Two that he identified as males are actually females, and you can tell that by looking at the illustration. He also identified all of the figures as living human beings, but four of them are actually gods, and one of them is a deceased human being. The figure that Smith identified as King Pharaoh is actually the goddess Isis. The figure he identified as Abraham is actually the god Osiris. The figure he identified as the prince of Pharaoh is the goddess Ma'at. Ma'at, I should mention, so uh, uh, go back to the first one, Isis. She's the goddess of magic. Osiris is the god of the dead. Ma'at is the goddess of order. And they had a very precarious living situation in Egypt, so it was everyone's duty to support order, to support Ma'at. So she was a big goddess in Egyptian mythology. The figure that Smith identified as Shulam, one of the king's principal waiters, is actually the deceased human priest named Hor or Horus. And then the figure he identified as Olimla, a slave belonging to the prince, is actually the god Anubis, uh, the jackal head. And there's, there's, no debout, there's no doubt about this. They are identified this way in the text above their heads and hands, which is actually where Smith said their identities would be revealed. And yeah, that's, that's, that's where it is revealed. And Mormon Egyptologists admit this. This is not something that only non-Mormons say. Anybody with a knowledge of the Egyptian language who's looking at the original manuscript can see this is exactly who these people are. The same kind of problems apply to Smith's explanations of the other two facsimiles, but this makes the point, so we don't need to go into that right now. Scholars can now read the Joseph Smith papyri, and we know what they are. They are a funerary document, a funerary document that was prepared for this deceased priest named Hor. And the purpose of the document, it's a magical document to help him function in the afterlife. The papyri are what are known as a book of breathings or a breathing permit. They're they're not a book of Abraham written by his own hand. They actually date to around 2000 BC, which is, you know, 16 to 1800 years after Abraham's time. They, but they date to around 200 BC, plus or minus a century, when the Egyptian priest Hor lived. And of course, they were written by someone else's hand, not Abraham. Lest people think I'm making it up about Mormon Egyptologists agreeing about what the manuscripts say, I'd like to share 
a couple of passages from the Joseph Smith papyri as translated by the Mormon Egyptologist Michael D. Rhodes. In these passages, the first one's a couple sentences, the last is just one sentence, but in these passages, the deceased priest Hor is referred to as Osiris Hor, because since he's dead, he's become identified with Osiris, the god of the dead. He's also spoken of as sitting on Osiris's throne, and the Book of Breathings, in the translation called the Document of Breathings, is itself explicitly mentioned. Uh, Dom, could you read the passages for us? O Osiris Hor, justified, born of Tekebet, justified. Tekebet. May your soul breathe any place you want. You are on the throne of Osiris. Foremost of the Westerners is your name. The great Happy, or Hapi, has come to you from Elephantine to fill your offering table with provisions. May the document of breathing cause you to flourish. May you accompany Osiris. Right. So there's a little bit, I won't unpack everything in there, but do you have the prayer, may your soul breathe? And that's the purpose of the book of breathings or breathing permit or document of breathing, breathing, whatever you want to call it, because it's meant to magically give the deceased person the ability to breathe and speak in the afterlife. That's why it's called a book of breathing. Foremost of the Westerners, uh, so in Egyptian religious language, a Westerner is a dead person, someone who's gone into the West like the setting sun and that's buried on the West side of the Nile. The prayers in the document are asking that the book serve its magical function of helping the deceased priest whore to breathe and allow him to accompany the god of the dead Osiris in the West. This is not controversial at all. Egyptologists universally agree to this, including Mormon ones. And this is decisive evidence that shows that Smith was not a supernaturally endowed translator. The text doesn't say what he said it did. It's not even close. And his credibility as a translator is essential to the credibility of the Mormon scriptures. Uh, His inability to translate texts like the Joseph Smith papyri suggests that the Mormon scriptures aren't credible, because if he couldn't translate the Book of Abraham accurately from Egyptian, he couldn't. We don't have reason to think he translated the uh, the Book of Mormon accurately either, or that he had supernatural prophetic endowments, because they they clearly didn't work in this case. So, so how do Mormons respond to these points to this evidence? The Mormon Church doesn't have an official way of answering uh, these. They they leave that up to to Mormon apologists to try to address. One theory that has been proposed is that studying the papyri led Smith to have an independent revelation that resulted in the Book of Abraham. So he's got these Egyptian papyri in his hands that he bought when he bought some mummies, and he's reading them and or you know looking at them, and it inspires him to have this revelation that results in the Book of Abraham. Since Smith's Book of Abraham facsimiles, though, are you know demonstrably incorrect, it's understandable that Mormon scholars would develop a theory that, you know, encountering Egyptian writings merely spurred him to have an independent revelation. But that isn't what Smith claimed. He didn't say, I was reading this or looking at this, and I had an independent revelation. He, as the preface of the Book of Abraham says, it is a translation of some some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacombs of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the Book of Abraham, 
written by his own hand upon papyrus. So it's, it's not just claiming Abraham wrote this in a general way. He wrote this manuscript by his own hand. That's what that means. And then Smith didn't just have a vision where he, you know, heard God dictate the content of the book of Abraham. They were going through it character by character in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar uh, for part of the manuscript. So this is clearly a translation of a text, not an independent revelation. And similarly, when you look at the facsimiles, here's the facsimile of part of the text with the scene, let's say, of of uh, allegedly Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne, and you look at the text, which Smith says right here, it says it's Abraham, and it doesn't. It says it's Osiris. So, so these, to my mind, count as decisive evidence against Smith's claims. So that's the the reason perspective. What can we say about Smith's status as a prophet from the faith perspective? The Book of Abraham claims that our spirits have existed from all eternity, that God lives near a near a star or planet called Kolob, and that a council of gods made the world. And that's in Abraham 3 through 5. Other Mormon teachings include the idea that human beings and gods are the same species, so that God is simply an exalted man. Mormonism and its scriptures portray a fundamentally different vision of God and man than the Christian faith does, and that gives Christians a reason to reject them. St. Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to you contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed or let him be anathema. That's Galatians 1.8. Similarly, St. Jude, in verse 3 of his book, tells us that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, meaning we need to accept the Christian revelation as it was given to us and new doctrines of this sort that you know pertain to the core of the faith and say God and man are fundamentally different than than the Christian faith has held them to be are things we need to reject. So what about this Mormon invitation to pray about whether the Book of Mormon is true? Is that something we should take serious or do? So a couple of the passages that Mormons use to support this are in their own scriptures. We mentioned one of them is in Moroni 10 verses 4 to 5, and the other is Doctrine and Covenants 8, 9. The directions they contain do suggest making prayers, but there's circularity here. I mean, if these are genuine scriptures, then they would indicate that God wants us to pray about these matters. But if they're not genuine scriptures, then they don't show that God wants us to pray about these matters. So it's it's really circular to appeal to those passages from a Christian perspective. You have to assume to a certain extent, these passages may be what they claim to be in order to take that seriously. But with, if they're not, then there's no divine promise that this is going to work. Mormons also appeal to James 1.5, where James talks about exhorting people to pray for wisdom. And so that one is authentic scripture, but it doesn't mean that it's a promise God will give us a private revelation about whether a book is scripture or not. That's not what James is talking about in context. You read it in context, and he seems to be talking about just, you know, wisdom in general. He never mentions praying about the contents of the Bible or the scriptures. Uh, instead, he seems to be talking about what people would ordinarily think of as needing to make wise decisions, like about, should I get married, or who should I marry, or should I take this job, or things like that. And he doesn't even then promise that someone's going to have a private revelation about anything. 
One often receives wisdom by praying and then studying and looking at the evidence. You know, like what are the pluses and minuses of this person as a spouse or what are the pluses and minuses of taking this as a job? James's exhortation can be understood just in terms of asking God to guide us as we look at the evidence, which God has also given us. The evidence comes from God when we weigh our options. So James doesn't provide a firm basis for saying God's going to give you a private revelation, whether it's in the form of a burning in your bosom or a vision or anything else about Scripture. Then there is the problem that we just should not be open to things that contradict what God has already revealed. This is a principle that's found in Deuteronomy 13 in verses 1 through 3 of that chapter. Dom, could you, uh, could you read that for us? If a prophet arises among you or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that, to that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Right. So in this case, even if the prophet says this is going to happen and it does, if he goes on to contradict previous revelation, which said you shall only worship me, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. If he contradicts private revelation, even if he can produce a sign, you don't listen to him. Now, I, I want to point out Mormons, even though they believe in other gods, they don't say we should worship them. So they're not doing this, but they should be able to recognize that, yeah, okay, if you're an ancient Israelite and a prophet produces a sign and then says, let's go worship Baal or let's go worship Moloch, that as a faithful Israelite, you should say, no, that contradicts prior revelation that God has already shown us. And so from coming at this from a Christian perspective, already accepted the Bible as God's word, and it's indicated I mean, there are passages that say there is only one God. So as Christians, we've accepted that. We therefore should not be open to praying about, are there more than one God? That's, to, that's something that contradicts the revelation we've already been given. Um, and we simply should not be open to that. Uh, especially, we shouldn't be opening ourselves up subjectively to feelings like burning in a bosom, because subjective feelings aren't reliable. Feelings come and go. And we can influence our subjective feelings. We can talk ourselves up into feeling certain things, and they don't necessarily correspond to the way the world is. In fact, people oftentimes, when they're getting ready to sin, they'll talk themselves up into feeling a certain way to, to, to justify what they want to do. And as Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So God's already given us objective evidence concerning Smith's status as a prophet. And we shouldn't ignore that evidence and then rely on subjective feelings that would contradict the evidence God has given. So, Jimmy, what's the bottom line here on Joseph Smith uh, as a prophet? There are many Mormons who are sincere in their faith and who strive to be good people and, you know, follow God as they understand him. However, the evidence doesn't support the idea that Joseph Smith was a genuine prophet. There is a lack of evidence that the golden plates existed. There is a lack of archaeological evidence supporting the existence of any of the civilizations described in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith incorrectly predicted that the nullification crisis or the Civil War would lead to a world war. The Joseph Smith papyri are an Egyptian book of breathings prepared for a deceased priest named Hor and not 
the book of Abraham written by his own hand. This last point is particularly decisive in showing Smith wasn't a supernaturally endowed translator. And in view of all this evidence, Christians should not pray about whether he was a prophet or whether the Mormon scriptures are true. The evidence indicates that they're not. All right. So what further resources can we offer to listeners uh, who want to uh, follow up on some of what you've talked about? Well, we have a number of uh, links. One is Wikipedia's article on Joseph Smith. Another is Wikipedia's article on the standard works. Another is Wikipedia's article on the fake salamander letter. Uh, That's the forgery that Mark Hoffman tried to pass off that was then debunked. Also, Robert Rittner's book, The Joseph Smith Egyptian Papyri, a complete edition. Michael Rhodes's book, The Whore Book of Breathings, a translation and commentary, which is put out by Brigham Young University Press. So it's even a Mormon press. You can read Mormon translation of this. And also there's a video that's a fact-based, very neutral analysis of the Book of Abraham on YouTube that you can watch. We also have links to the official Mormon website, lds.org. There's a link to Joseph Smith History, a link to the article on Seer Stones, an account of the lost 116 pages, and both the testimony of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, as well as a link to facsimile three from the Book of Abraham, which is the one we talked about that has the scene of a whore being presented to the God of the dead, Osiris. All right. So that's a a very comprehensive look at Joseph Smith uh, as the Mormon prophet. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback. And our first feedback, uh, so our feedback this month, uh, this week is coming from our uh, ATIP episode. And so our first email comes from Emily, who says, I generally love your topics and your treatment of them. You guys both do a great job of giving both sides to a story, and I love that. You're both very even-handed. But I think the ATIP story was a bit one-sided. It's my understanding that almost all the claims come from Luis Elizondo, and he made them in connection with his new To the Stars adventure, for which he and Bigelow were trying to obtain funding. It's my understanding that this venture released a report on one of the videos with blacking out style censorship on it, but it wasn't a government document. They had chosen to write and black out their own faux report. This type of thing feels like a red flag. I love you all, I really do, but you guys made it sound like the government itself legitimately measured these objects in some scientific way. Like these are definite real objects that definitely had this technology. But my understanding is that the only source for this is Mr. Elizondo's own assertions about what they found without good evidence that this is based on anything more than pilots or witnesses' own estimations. And the videos were already, many of them, on the internet with plenty of skeptics' explanations. So I appreciate Emily's feedback. In order to keep the episode manageable, we decided to focus just on ATIP, not on To The Stars Academy. I plan on doing a follow-up episode on To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences. And I know there is criticism of TTAS, but rather than, and I think there's legitimate room for criticism, I think TTAS has made some mistakes in the way they present stuff. I think they would be better if, I think they would do better work if they focused less on the arts and more on the sciences in how they present stuff to the public. So I think there is legitimate room for criticism there, but the evidence we have from ATIP was something new. The videos were not already, the ATIP videos were not already out there. That was something that was released to the public. And and Luis Elizondo played a role in getting those videos released. He was the one that filed the request to have them released. But their their actual gun camera footage 
of what pilot w- pilots were seeing, and you can use them to make measurements and so forth. So I think we want to distinguish between our different sources of evidence here. This is ATIP, not TTAS. And so we're going to continue to cover this, and I don't have any particular theory I'm arguing in terms of is in those videos, but whatever it is, is something that's real because we filmed it, and the government filmed it, the military filmed it, and we need to take it seriously. Um, and if you want to find out more about the uh, about ATIP and what they've been doing, we actually recorded, you and I recorded a bit of a discussion about the program unidentified on the History Channel that is following TTAS and Elizondo, um, which we made available to our patrons on patreon.com slash StarQuest. Yeah. And that also gets into the To the Stars Academy and and some of the criticisms. And we, and we will be covering those in the future. Yep. So uh, John on Facebook says, I believe that people have it all wrong about UFOs. I think that the gray aliens are actually demons that are put into your mind by evil forces. I've read articles that say if you call out to Jesus during an abduction that they immediately leave you alone. Yeah, there are also abduction accounts, though, where people tried that and the Greys said, we don't care about your religion. So it's kind of a depends on who you're listening to. I don't I mean, I believe demons are real. I believe they do interact in the world in various ways. But in order to say that something is definitely demons, you need you need substantial evidence. And sometimes Christians get a bad name for themselves by too quickly going to the demonic option as an explanation. And it causes our faith to be mocked if you too quickly leap to that assumption just because it seems strange or cynical. Right. And that uh, connects with our next feedback, which is from Chris on Facebook, who says, uh, Jimmy Aiken, I find it so refreshing that you don't necessarily consider the UFO phenomenon to be d- demonic in nature. You said you're not a fundamentalist. I'd like to learn more about this. We'll definitely be talking more about alien phenomena in the future, and we'll also be talking more about demonic phenomena in the future. So even though I don't necessarily assume that any phenomena is demonic, it's not my first go-to explanation, you know, in a kind of knee-jerk fashion, I don't rule it out either. And so we just have to look at the evidence and see where it leads us. All right. And so that's our mysterious feedback. Oh, wait, no, we have one more from David Mm -hmm. Arcudi on YouTube, who says, the best compliment I can give you, Jimmy, I have no interest in UFOs and you make them interesting. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dave. I try to present here on the show stuff that is going to be interesting to people, stuff that I find interesting, mysteries that are fun to puzzle out, even if it's one that, you know, someone might not normally be interested in. I hope that I can make it interesting for you. And thank you. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I love to, to, the things that I've never heard of. Like, I love when we talked about Roswell, but I love, mm-hmm. you know, because I've heard about that. But I love, like, we talk about um, John Hendricks, who had never heard of yeah. before. So, yeah, keep an open mind, folks, and, you know, try try every topic that we, we, we come out, because uh, you'll never know. So, Jimmy, we, we have some mysterious headlines. Uh, do you have those for us this week? Yeah. So, uh, since our feedback was on ATIP this time, I thought I would include a link to an article criticizing Tom DeLonge's To the Stars Academy. There is an article on The Drive which claims that it may be some kind of government info operation. So um, since we brought up, you know, I I said we'd be talking about this and until we're able to, here's a link that you can uh, can read where some people are making that criticism. Also, um, another article from The Drive, which has really been covering this subject well, on what is going on with UFOs and the Department of Defense. So look, you have both a look at TTAS and a look at ATIP or its successor. 
So in just a second, I'll ask Jimmy what we're going to be talking about next week. But before that, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kimberly W., Lynn F., Suzanne S., Dennis S., and Fonseca B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, uh, what is going to be our next episode? Next time, we're going to be talking about what many people say is a sinister world-dominating conspiracy known as Bohemian Grove. Mm, Interesting. All right. So that's it from us this week, folks. What did you think about what we had to say about Joseph Smith, the original Mormon prophet? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, and you can leave feedback there. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. No spaces. You should uh, subscribe to the show if you have not yet done so. Subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts and Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app or on YouTube where you should hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. And uh, you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>